This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Say you begin to realize, okay, we've got to address this selective mutism in my child. You've got to start where the child is. And if they are communicating using hand signals or they're writing things down, we don't start by then just ripping away all those accommodations and thinking that suddenly they're going to be able to do this because you're going to interfere with their social connection. So you want to foster social connection by not ripping away, by not pulling away those accommodations that are temporarily in place. So those are the don'ts. Welcome to season six of Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and all the big feelings too. We tackle the serious stuff without being too serious. And I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author. And I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. I'll give you concrete steps to take and the words to say. Robin, a question that people ask me a lot, and I know it's like a question of hope, (laughs) a question of optimism, is will they grow out of this? Mm, Yes. Like, I think he'll just grow out of this, or I hope he grows out of it, or is this something that I need to address, or is it something that my child will grow out of? Which I think is a really important thing to talk about, because the answer is some things yes and some things no, and I think it's important to know the difference. Do you remember when my son was around two and it was his ritual to arrive at his destination, a restaurant, an ice cream parlor, wherever it was, he then decided once he was there, he had to remove his pants, (laughs) shoes and socks and undress. We have that Christmas card of him with Santa. (laughs) And he has no pants on. No, he would wear his underpants, right? Yeah, he wouldn't be totally, we call that porky pigonet. When you've got nothing on from the waist down, that's porky (laughs) pigonet. Yes, he did grow out of that, thank goodness, because now he's in middle school and that would have been really, really tricky. Yeah, everyone kept laughing about that. Like, oh, let's hope he grows out of this. Yeah, can he keep his pants on? Yes, he can, he can. He got very good at it. He's excellent at it now. He's really nailed that skill of being able to keep his pants on. Yeah. And I remember with my sister's oldest, who's now in his 30s, he had this stutter for a while. And my son had a lisp also when he was little. And the stuttering was a normal thing because he had a lot to say. This little guy was very verbal and had a lot to say. It's just that his mouth couldn't keep up with what he was. He just hadn't put all the pieces together yet. But that was something also that is pretty common for kids to grow out of as developmentally they catch up. That's interesting when you talk about patterns of speech, because very often kids do outgrow things. But that's one of those where the parents are always struggling with, do we get help? Do we want to just wait and see? My kids are much older than that phase now, but I do think it's fair that most parents who have younger children are sort of desperately optimistic that they want to believe that it will go away on its own because the plate's already so full. 
they may not want to seek intervention or they don't want to be overly cautious. Right. When my son had his lisp, I've told this story and he went to the dentist and the dentist came out and said to me, have you had an evaluation for this kid? And I said, why? He goes, had that lisp. And I said, oh, he's just, he's talking about Harry Potter, right? So he's like, put the Sathcap on. I've told that story before. And so what I did at that point is I asked my friend, who is a speech and language person, what could I do at home that would help with that? And she was able to give me some things and we practice it and the lisp went away. But if it hadn't gone away, if the things that she told me hadn't worked, then I probably would have gone the next step. Right. So that's the question really is that when do you intervene and when do you ignore? When do you let them grow out of it? Picky eating, a lot of times we can let kids developmentally move through that and a lot of kids grow out of that. Nightmares oftentimes when kids are little and they're having some sleep disruption, that's something that kids grow out of. Wetting the bed oftentimes, right, is that they do that as they're transitioning and then they move forward. But sometimes we have to get help for it. Sometimes it's not something that they grow out of it. And here's the thing. With certain anxiety issues, if you leave it alone, if you don't do anything about it, it doesn't go away and oftentimes becomes worse. And so that's kind of the place that we want to pay attention. And so it really is a matter of degree and it's a matter of whether or not it's interfering in their normal activities, their normal development. And being able to make that call, sometimes there's not an exact right answer oftentimes. And sometimes you do wait and see. Sometimes you do hang back. Sometimes you do what I did where you talk to your friend and you get a few tips and you see if that resolves it. But then sometimes it's really important to not ignore it and to get some help. The average time actually that people wait to take their child for help to a mental health professional, depending on the numbers that you look at, is between two and eight years. So that's a really long time to wait. If you've got a child who's anxious, if you've got a child who's really having difficulty socially, if you've got a child who's not able to fall asleep, if you've got a child who's only eating two things, if you've got a child who has a stutter that is not a little developmental phase, that's a really long time to wait. And sometimes waiting is just not the thing to do. So I know we've had a lot of listener questions about this topic. And so this leads us to one of the behaviors that can be really difficult to manage as a parent, and that's selective mutism. Correct. Maybe for all of us, you could give us a little introduction of what that is. Sure. Tell me like I'm six. Really, like this is something that people don't know about, and it's really important to have some understanding of it. Selective mutism means that you don't talk often at all in certain settings. You don't talk except to people that are kind of in your inner circle. So, kids with selective mutism, they could go through a year of school, they could go through years of their life and never talk outside the home. And when they're at home, they talk a lot. So one of the things that's important to recognize is that this is not an issue of not being able to speak. This is not an issue where you have some sort of language difficulty, where you're not capable of articulating things. When these kids are in a comfortable environment, when they're with their parents, when they're with their siblings, they talk a mean streak. Sometimes it's hard to get them to shut up. They talk so much. 
But when they're out in the world, at school, if they're around unfamiliar people, even sometimes if they're around very familiar people, like for example, there may be a child with selective mutism that talks a mean streak at home, but then when the babysitter comes over or even a grandparent comes over, they don't say a word. It's very interesting and it's an anxiety disorder. What is curious about it is that it used to be under the realm of speech and language people used to address it. And it got moved under the anxiety disorder heading fairly recently, several years ago, because it really is based on severe anxiety in speaking and having one's voice heard. It's a real social phobia type thing. When I think of maybe movies or TV shows or literature, and there's a child who doesn't speak, that character is often portrayed as a child who's experienced trauma, but that they don't really speak at all. So that first word is always a dramatic moment. That's not what we're talking about, because that's a different circumstance. So that's what can contribute to a misunderstanding of this. Correct. And that trope that you see in movies a lot, so the child isn't speaking, and then they say, daddy killed, you know, whatever. I mean, that's just movie stuff. When kids are selectively mute, when they're not speaking, it's not based on trauma. And people will go searching and looking for some trauma or something that happened and how do they lose their voice? And they get very symbolic about it. This is a child that doesn't feel like his voice can be heard. And all of that is really not accurate and not necessary. This is an anxiety issue in which it becomes really hard to speak. And what happens is with many of the anxiety disorders, it sort of takes over territory. So there are places where a child won't speak. And then after they don't speak there, then that becomes a place they don't speak. And so it sort of widens its net so to speak. It's sort of like when people have panic attacks, they have a panic attack in the grocery store, so now they're not going to go to the grocery store. Or they have a panic attack when they were driving in this part of town, so now they're not going to go to this part of town. Let's take a break and we'll be right back. Okay. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me. And if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option. That is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners, eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, 
Grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free, in bulk, nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. You know when you're listening to a song on the radio and you just have this feeling that the song was written about you or that it was someone that you love trying to say something to you? Well, now imagine the power to gift that same incredible feeling to someone you love with an original song that actually is about them and about your relationship and that Songfinch writes just for you. Songfinch lets you create an original radio quality song inspired by your own life and the people that you love. It's completely unique, it's personal, and it lasts forever. I had the pleasure of creating a family song with Songfinch about our summer celebrations that we have every year. I knew it was going to make everybody cry, and it certainly did. I got to be honest, I was even crying, giving all of the information and helping personalize my song with the writer that I chose. He absolutely delivered a beautiful acoustic song that captured exactly what I was looking for, and it was so fun to share with the family. So whether you're song is for Father's Day, an upcoming graduation, a wedding or an anniversary, or even just a gift to show your loved one how much you care, start your song now to lock in one of Songfinch's top artists. Don't waste another dollar on more stuff. It only takes four to seven days, but that song will last forever. For a limited time, Songfinch is letting our listeners upload their song to Spotify for free so you and the lucky person or people can listen to it anywhere, anytime. So go to songfinch.com slash fluster and start your song. After you purchase, you'll be prompted to add Spotify streaming for your original song for free, a $50 value. Again, the URL is songfinch.com slash Fluster. Don't forget to share your song with us too in our Facebook group, songfinch.com slash fluster. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. Okay, we're back. That's very interesting that you bring up panic attacks 
and their parallel manifestation. Because while selective mutism might be more of a child's manifestation of this pattern, age appropriate, panic obviously is often more adult manifestation of this too. Yeah. And it's different because when kids have selective mutism, they aren't having big, huge, physical, panicky responses. When a child is selectively mute, they actually can be very pleasant and very engaged in the environment that they're in. So kids learn socially. So say you've got a kid who's selectively mute and they're in first grade. They learn how to oftentimes elicit the help of somebody else to communicate for them. They will shake their head or nod their head. They will engage. They will interact. They just won't speak. You have a child who's selectively mute. It's not necessarily that they're hiding in the corner. It's not that they won't engage at all. It's that they won't speak. And I've had families where one child is selectively mute and the sibling comes in and they have a lot to say. They just whisper into the sibling's ear and then the sibling says what the child wants to say. We have to make sure that we don't see this as a child that doesn't want to be in the world, as a child that doesn't want to go to school. It can be that for sure, but it's not entirely that. My son's friend who struggled with this was very social with his friends and talked a mean streak at home and was very engaged in all of the activities that the kids did, but he wouldn't talk to me. And when adults were around, he had a really hard time speaking. If you saw him in his environment, he was a pretty gregarious little guy. And the good news is he's worked on it. He doesn't do this anymore as a young adult, which is terrific. So let's talk about families. They want to seek treatment. Start from the beginning. First thing to know is that this isn't something that you should let fester. You shouldn't say, well, my child will just go out of this. This is considered a severe anxiety disorder. This can be crippling to kids' social development. So it's not something that you want to ignore. The interesting thing that I've heard, and it's not true, but this is what people say, well, she's fine talking to adults. She just has difficulty talking to other peers. So we're going to wait until she grows up and becomes an adult, and then she'll be able to talk to everybody. That's not a good strategy. (laughs) So what you want to do where you can seek treatment with this is that you want certainly want to go to somebody who knows about selective mutism. And there are some really great programs where it's almost like a day camp for selective mutism. And there's a guy named Steve Kurtz, K-U-R-T-Z, kurtzpsychology.com is his website. And he really specializes in this. He's in Manhattan, but he came up with this program. It used to be called Brave Buddies. Now it's called Mighty Mouths. And He has kids go into a classroom setting, but they have an adult coach. Oftentimes, it might be a graduate student that is there to help this child step in and practice using their voice. The key part of it is that parents need to have some guidance about this. It's a step-by-step process, and the goal is to sort of introduce or bring in trusted people, you've got to get the trust of this child. And then we practice, just like in regular exposure therapy, going into situations and using their voice. But it's a step-by-step process, and it does involve 
the gaining of a connection and a relationship with the child rather than random people at school or relatives or somebody just sort of trying to convince this kid to talk. So here's my question as you say this. If this is a pretty intense anxiety pattern that shows up, how do you assign the layer of anxieties framework that we talk about in every episode. Because if you're going to be doing Mighty Mouths or a program like Mighty Mouths, there's still a lot of work to do of externalizing worry, I assume, and labeling it and separating the child from the anxious self that's saying they can't talk. Correct. Whenever we can help a child and a family understand how this thing works and then get that little bit of distance from it, like we call it SM mostly. Now we're dealing with this thing called SM and a child gets education about it. It's not who they are. It's an issue that they have. Parents, we really want parents to be able to sort of separate it out from their child because one of the things that happens in families is parents feel really embarrassed about this. They feel like relatives are giving them a hard time about it. I've talked with families like, well, say you're in the grocery store and you've got a child who's got SM and a friend comes up and says, oh, hi, how are you? And the child doesn't say anything. The parents get very frustrated. Sometimes they get angry, they get embarrassed. So as soon as we understand what this thing is, and as soon as we can create some distance, and then we practice same thing that we do with all the anxiety disorders. The disorder wants you to freak out about it. And I want you to be like, yeah, this is a thing we're going to practice. And when we make it a game, when there's a lot of support, when there's understanding for it, then the child can practice and the family can practice without that level of pressure. Because that's the exact opposite of what we want to do is create pressure. If you have this child with an issue of SM requiring intervention and you are still sending your child to Mighty Mouths, are you really going to do much without the family acknowledging the anxiety patterns in the family that were modeled for the child where then their individual anxiety sort of took off? Don't you have to do all of this? not just isolate it? Yeah. So there's another way that they treat selective mutism. And again, Steve Kurtz is one of the people who's been really at the forefront of this. And there's something called parent-child interaction training. And that in general is sort of like the Cyrano de Bergerac of parenting. Like the parent has a coach there and the parent is told what to do. Like it's really hands-on coaching. And the same thing happens with selective mutism. So it's this parent-child interaction training around selective mutism. To answer your question, the child can go to Mighty Mouse, but a huge component of this is the parent being a part of the treatment. Not everybody thinks that you have to work with the parents. You might take your child to somebody for selective mutism and they're not working with the family. And again, I think that's stupid. And Steve Kurtz would also probably think that that's stupid too. Okay. That was definitely a question too, because it's like, would you recommend that that's okay? That you don't work with the family? Right. No. If we were talking about a child that had a fear of vomiting or a child who had social anxiety. Right. Or an agoraphobic child or- Right. School avoidance. It doesn't make sense to not give the parents both 
the coaching that they need to help their child so they don't make the problem worse or they don't ignore the problem or they don't do things that are counterproductive, but also that the parent has to really look at what are the family patterns. This thing is something that runs in families just because we know that temperamentally, Social anxiety and kids, if we talk about, oh, he's so introverted or he's so shy, this is way beyond shyness, of course, but we know that those things run in families, nature plus nurture. It would make no sense to me if there was a child that was in first grade and had selective mutism, that the parents weren't absolutely a part of the treatment. And in fact, maybe I wouldn't even see the child for a while. Maybe if it was a little child, I would really coach the parents. That's always going to be a part of what I do, for sure. Do you think that there are some listeners right now who are dealing with this, who have resistance where they say, look, I know I'm a little bit anxious, but I don't really see how this is related to my son or something like that. They don't see that connection. And then that's probably pushback. You get a lot where the parents don't want to see how it's kind of all related. Yes. And I just put up a little Instagram reel the other day, and I said, the families that are the hardest for me to work with are the families that don't own their own stuff. To me, there's a differentiation for me of families that really don't understand what's going on, or they've never really thought about it, or they have these light bulb moments, or they knew that something was not working with their kid, but they didn't even know there was a name for it. So I say, yeah, it's called selective mutism or yeah, this is what social anxiety looks like. And they're like, oh, now I get it. And then there are other families that are like, no, mm -mm, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not anxious. This is not. And those are really, really hard families for me to work with, to make progress. So the more denial that somebody has or the more closed off they are to just see that we are social creatures and these things run in families, the less likely it is that we're going to get anywhere. We'll be right back after this break. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners 
on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, so now back to the show. Okay, so let's just go through a little bit of the do's and don'ts of selective mutism. Here are some of the don'ts. Don't force your child or try to force your child to speak in a way that is shaming. And I know people don't do this on purpose, of course, but make sure that your embarrassment or your self-consciousness or the pressure that you're feeling from other relatives or people doesn't rub off then on your urgency to get your child to speak. Forcing them, pushing them, begging them, bribing them doesn't really get you anywhere. So that's a don't. When you're working with a school, make sure that people understand that it is not their job in the school to try and convince or get your child to talk. We certainly don't want to set up any kind of like reward or punishment system in a school. And we want to make sure that there isn't anybody in the school who sort of decided that that's going to be their mission is they're going to get this kid to talk because all of that backfires. The other thing you want to make sure that the adults around your child know is that if your child uses his voice, that there shouldn't be a big celebration about that. People shouldn't be like, oh my gosh, Tanya just talked, because that's exactly what they fear, is they're going to use their voice and, that, and the attention is going to come heaping on them. So we want everybody to really be pretty nonchalant about this whole thing. The less that you put pressure on yourself and your child to speak, the better off in the long term it's going to be. Now, that doesn't mean that you ignore it. So another don't is that you think your child will grow out of this and you let it go for years and years and years and years. You really should address this as soon as you begin to see that it's a problem. This is something you want to get onto early. Another don't is that say you begin to realize, okay, we've got to address this selective mutism in my child. You've got to start where the child is. And if they are communicating using hand signals or they're writing things down, we don't start by then just ripping away all those accommodations and thinking that suddenly they're going to be able to do this because you're going to interfere with their social connection. And when they interfere with their social connection, that becomes more of a problem over time. So you want to foster social connection by not ripping away, by not pulling away those accommodations that are temporarily in place. So those are the don'ts. We have a lot of school teachers and guidance counselors who listen. So how do you think a teacher should handle just like the basic daily class when they're supposed to call on kids? What do you think is the best way to handle that? One of the things, and I've heard this before, and sometimes this is, is really helpful, is that if you have a child in a classroom and say they're you know in first, second, third grade, it is really okay. And you want to get the family's permission for this. And sometimes even you want to get the child's permission for this. It's okay to let the other kids in the classroom know that 
Tanya has something called selective mutism, and she's working on it, but it means that sometimes she has difficulty speaking or using her voice, and she's working on it, so we're all going to support her in that. That can be a lovely thing in a classroom. You're teaching empathy and awareness to the other kids too, but then you've got a group of kids in a classroom that really understand that she's working on this. You have to be careful because then the child with selective mutism is really good at sort of recruiting people to speak for them, and we want to work on minimizing that. But it really is okay for a teacher with permission to talk to the other kids in the class so that everybody knows what's going on so this child doesn't get isolated. The other thing that's really important for a teacher to do is, and if the child is getting help for this, is to communicate with the person who's giving the treatment and see if you can work together with the family and with the treating therapist to introduce or to bring that teacher into that trusted circle. So it may even be, and this is asking a lot of teachers, but I'll tell you it's worth it. It may even be that that child meets with the teacher and the parents outside of the classroom or in a different setting so that the child can have the opportunity to use their voice with the teacher, not in the pressure of the classroom setting. So that can be a really effective intervention, a very supportive and kind thing for a teacher to do. The other thing that you can work on, and this would be under the category of do's, is that if you're working with a child or if you're a teacher, a piano teacher, whatever, is that oftentimes allowing the child to use their voice like on a recording so that the other adult hears their voice with them not in the room. So in other words, you have this chatterbox of a child record something, a video or just an audio, and then have the teacher, the piano teacher or whatever, listen to it. And so now we've sort of pierced that bubble a little bit. The child's voice has been heard by the teacher. And maybe you do that with the teacher not in the room with the child at first. And then you take another step of the child makes a recording. And then the child is there while the trusted adult listens to the recording. So that's something that I do in my office. I might step out into the waiting room, let them record, and then I come back into the therapy room and they play the recording for me. Those can all be wonderful steps that you can take that just allow this child to get more and more accustomed to people hearing their voice. The other thing we just want to be really clear about is that this is not about defiance. It's not about opposition. It's not about a child that's stubborn or strong-willed. This is a really significant anxiety disorder. They really have a hard time getting over that hump. And so we want to be caring and supportive, and we want to have a plan that we're working on. When you talked about the recording, it reminded me when my little guy was pretty young, we wanted to give him practice speaking, and we would have him call my grandmother and give her the weather. (laughs) Oh, that's so adorable. And that way she got a phone call and my son would read her the weather. But I could imagine, especially if the child has this first grade teacher that they like, it's like, would you like to record the weather? And then it becomes like a thing that eventually, I don't know, I wonder if you made practice of that. And then the teacher was like, thank you so much for this. Eventually, could the child just tell the weather? What does your phone say right now? Right. That's what you work toward. And the great thing about this is that when 
you are working with people that understand this and that are taking it step by step, there are really great results with this kind of help, with this kind of treatment. So we have reason to be optimistic. Can I just ask, did your grandmother just think that he just wanted to call and tell her the weather? Or was she in on it, in other words? Well, no, I don't think she was really in on it. It was just an opportunity for him to reach out to her and have something to say before he knew her very well. Now he knows her and he can say, how's your day going or something like that. But when he was little, it was a way for them to have something. That is just adorable. Because of technology, we can be creative with that. You could have your child sing a song and make a video of your child singing a song or playing or doing something silly and then send that video to a relative. And then the relative can call your child and the child might not speak, but the relative or the relative visits and says, I saw that you were singing. What a lovely voice you have. I loved how you danced to that song. And we're just allowing the child to sort of be gently dipped into the world of people hearing their voice, right? That's what we're doing. You're normalizing it for them in controlled steps by step. Correct. And a child can be involved in what those steps are going to be. So you can say, well, we're working on this. Can you come up with an idea that we could help somebody hear your voice. What would we do? Could we try this? Could we try that? It really is just about being very loving and supportive and allowing that child to trust you, which is very different oftentimes when parents or adults or the grumpy aunt is like, oh, so you just won't talk? I mean, that just is not the way to go. And that sounds extreme, but that happens a lot, actually. I could imagine that it's twofold. On one hand, you have the grumpy aunt who's like, oh, you're just playing and not being helpful. And then on the other end, I could imagine someone at school like, I'm going to make you speak this year. The two extremes are what parents should be mindful about and have everyone just in the neutral middle. Right. And then the other extreme is pretending it's not a problem and not doing anything about it And you as a family support the avoidance and the accommodations in the absence of skill building. Because we're going to have to accommodate this at first. We want them to communicate. We want them to connect. But ignoring is also an extreme that we don't want to support for sure. We were talking about the whole pants thing earlier. And it reminded me of one other thing that is definitely under the category of will they grow out of this? So there's the imaginary friend stage for many kids, but my son had imaginary nephews. Oh, that's so nice. I mean, it was just out of left field. I would be like reading him a story to go to sleep. And then he would say, hang on, I have to go say goodnight to my nephews. And then he would disappear under the covers. It's just like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's just so funny because nephews, right? That's just so funny. But he was a nephew, right? He was a nephew. He's your nephew. He's my nephew. And he heard about nephews a lot because I have two sons. So he was hearing you talk about your nephews. That's just so cute. He has two aunts, right? Nephews were his word. Anyway, I thought that was very adorable. Well, things that kids grow out of. Also, my son wore a superhero costume night and day for 19 months. And so we were really banking on the fact that he would grow out of that, which he did. Thank goodness. Yeah. (laughs) I remember that phase too. I met him shortly before that phase began. 
Yeah, it was Halloween of his two, and he was a superhero for Halloween. And then, man, the, he just loved that. Thank goodness we didn't dress him up as like a hot dog, right? I mean, he wore a hot dog costume for two years. But uh, yeah, I think I met him maybe like two months shy of his second birthday. I got to see him in street clothes once (laughs) (laughs) before that chapter. It is cute. You know what? And just a little advice to all of you who have little kids, you should write these things down because there are a lot of things that your kids do that you are sure you're going to remember and you're not. I have this little book of the funny things that they said and they did. And I know it sounds like, no, but truly, like if I look at that book, I forgot that they did these things. And it really just is such a wonderful memory to have. I only know these from, I get a Facebook memory. Oh, right. Because my daughter was really like that toddler preschooler age when Facebook became a thing for non-college students. Back then, people used Facebook differently, and I would share like a funny thing that she said. The all-time greatest. Yeah. She says, I'm hungry. Can I have a snack? And I said, no, it's almost dinner time. And she said, well, then can I have an appetizer? (laughs) That chick's going places. (laughs) Thanks for listening. And if you found this podcast helpful, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find this information. And if you'd like to dig deeper on any of these topics, we have specialized playlists on our Spotify profile, and the link is in the show notes. Topics like teens, depression, and OCD. Bye, Lynn. Bye, Robin. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts.